Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Fitz and a Fighter. I'm Brendan Fitzgerald, UFC play-by-play announcer. This is my interview series podcast, and thanks for listening. Episode four, Jessica Rose Clark is on the show. And I know I usually start with the tease at the top, but there is plenty to get to with Jessica Rose Clark. We went a little more than an hour. I knew she had an interesting story. I didn't know exactly how interesting it was from right in the beginning when she was growing up. Interesting in that way how she got into fighting, how she came over to the United States. She has some domestic violence in her past, which I did know about and I asked her about, and she kind of gets into why she uh, likes making that a part of her story and how she can help other people. Uh, Special shout-out to Danny Rubenstein, who is Jessica Rose Clark's manager, who helped me kind of set this interview up, and he is the Danny that she mentions in terms of helping her move to the United States and kind of give her the push that she needed to get into the UFC. So when she says Danny, that's who we're talking about, and thank you to him. Thank you to Jessica Rose Clark as well. I think you're going to love the show. Subscribe on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at TV. Without further ado, right to the good stuff. Here is Episode 4 of Fits in a Fighter with Jessica Rose Clark. Hello, Jessica Rose Clark. Hello, Brendan. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I don't know if you knew my name. Uh, I knew your face. I didn't know your name. But yeah. I, to be fair, I know I've been told your name. That's but right. I, I forget a lot. I've had many concussions. Other people think that I'm a lot more famous than I am, but I know that I'm not. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> but you we're, have we're here to talk about you anyways. Yeah, exactly. That's why I'm starting it. Get some, get some uh, credit behind my name. <laughs> Let's start with you. You're obviously not from the United States Correct. with an accent like that. Where Correct. are you from? I'm from Australia. Okay, what part of Australia? North Queensland, Cairns, which is where the Great Barrier Reef is. Okay. So I was born there, but I spent my whole life, well, legit my whole life traveling. So I've never really lived anywhere for longer than I think four years. Was really? Yeah. How come? Family. My mom, like we grew up uh, when my mom and dad separated. Um we all moved into a van and just traveled up and down the East Coast and lived, like, on different farms, different hippie communes, went to different, like, festivals and gatherings and, yeah. Wow. So, I had no idea. Yeah, a lot of people don't. Uh-huh. So, <coughs> so you were born? I was born in kids. Yeah. I think we left there before I was two. Yeah. Moved to Brisbane. Moved somewhere else in Brisbane. Moved to Toowoomba. But my dad separated. Moved back to Cairns and then got the van started traveling, and then when I was 10, I moved to what I call my hometown, which is Innisfail, because that's where I went to school. So I moved to Innisfail, which is where my grandma lived, Um, and that's where I went to school. I was homeschooled before that. So So how would you describe your childhood then? Gypsy life. We were gypsies. Yeah. 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 Which is really cool, Um, but I did realize, like, as I – only recently, actually, I think in the last two years, I realized that that upbringing was super awesome because I don't really hold, um, I don't hold material things to very high value, you know, mm-hmm. which I like personally because it stops me from developing attachment to things and to particular places. But then I also realized that like I was still being a gypsy in adult life, and it's really happy to, uh, really hard, sorry to build foundations for anything if you're constantly moving around, you know. So that's why I've been in Vegas for two and a half years, and that's the longest I've been anywhere since I was in my early teens. Yeah. Yeah. What – there must be stories if you lived a gypsy life and out of a van. Like what are some things that stick out that that you remember about growing up that way? So like we lived – so for a while we lived on this place called Mary Farms, which was – it was a massive farm that had a lot of fruit plantations, mango plantations, all other different kind of bananas, pawpaws, tons of different fruit there. There was one house um, on the property and a river running through it, which is the Mary River. And so tons of people, like literally hundreds of people, would travel in and out of that place all, all year, all year round. Um, and we lived there for a little while because the guy who owned it was disabled, so my mom became his carer. So then we lived on the property but we just lived under a tub or I think we had a tent for a while, mm-hmm. but usually it was under the stars. Like we just had bedding on the ground and then a top over the top to protect from the rain. Um, and that's kind of how a lot of people who live there lived. No one lived in houses except for the owner because he was disabled. He didn't want to live in a tent, you know, he was in a wheelchair. So he had his house and then there was a communal house with the kitchen and everything. 
Um, and pretty much to live on the property, you just had to contribute to looking after it. So everyone would cook together. Um, everyone would tend to the fruit trees. Everyone would tend to the guarding, the, the cleaning, everything like that. And so every now every year they would hold um, a festival called the Rain, uh, Rainbow Gathering. Yeah, Rainbow Gathering. And so people would travel from all over the country. People would travel from other parts of the world to go to the Rainbow Gatherings because it was like a week-long festival where they'd have spiritual leaders, they'd have music, drum circles, and pretty much everyone would just come together as a community and they'd all cook for each other. And, you know, different groups would be on different duties. So some people would have to tend to the bonfire on that day while another group would do the cooking, another group would do the cleaning. And, yeah, so that's kind of how I grew up till I was 10. How did you like it? Oh, I loved it. Um, I think my brothers and sisters liked it a lot more than what I did because I was kind of, because I was a bit older than they were, like I'm the oldest in my family. So because I was a bit older, I was like always kind of looking for something more. You know what I mean? Like it was a lot of fun, but I was an avid reader. I was adventurous and stuff like that. And I kind of, I was always just left looking after the kids, you Mm -hmm. know? So I was either looking after the younger kids or I was with adults. I was never with anyone my own age. So um, I really loved it. I love being outdoors. I think I work better being transient than what I do being, being stable. Um, but I did find that when I finally went to school in year, in year five, when I was 10, I had a really, really hard time relating to kids my own age. I think I, I, to be honest, like I still have a really hard time relating to people from my generation because I grew up around adults all the time. So like my music taste is from the forties and the fifties, you know, the movies I like are all eighties and people my own age. Like I don't, I grew up in the bush. so I don't know any of the cartoons that were on when I was a kid. I don't know like cereal. I don't know ads. I don't know music, you know? So that kind of made it hard for a little while. But as I became, as I grew up and became an adult, it's kind of part of my shtick, I guess. Like, <laughs> yeah. That all the time people go, oh, you remember this from this from when we were growing up? And I'm like, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no yeah, My idea. question was, you know, so you're kind of living this different lifestyle from a lot of children. Yeah. Did you know what was out there? Because what you don't know was out there. You wouldn't know. But did no. you know what was out there when you were No, I had no idea. Honestly, because everyone, all the families that we knew were doing the same thing that I was doing. So when I finally lived it, in a house tell at me the age that of 10. Moment. Tell me the moment when it hits you and you're like, what, what, have, what is this outside world that I don't know anything about? So it was when I went to live with my grandma uh-huh. and uh, she put me in school. Up Why did you live then? with your grandmother? So my mom has a lot of kids and when she was pregnant with my second youngest brother on my mom's side. My dad also has a lot of kids. On my mom's side, Marley, um, I did not get along with my stepdad at all. And he's the father of two of my, my two youngest brothers on my mom's side. I did not get along with him at all. My mom was pregnant. Um, I was, like, really angry at her for letting my stepdad be in our life. Like, I just hated him, you know, because he wasn't my dad. Like, my dad wasn't around. My dad didn't really talk to us that much. And then it was that he was being replaced by this man who never like in fairness my stepdad never ever tried to replace my bio dad you know he was just there to be support but I was really at that age I was nine ten I was really angry about it so my mom just couldn't handle me anymore sent me up to live with my grandma because my grandma was my best friend like every time we lived up north which was where my grandma was like my grandma and I used to go line dancing together we'd sit up all night watching x-files marathons like We'd go to 7-Eleven and buy yogurt and granola and sit in bed all night eating yogurt and granola. Like, I loved my grandma, you know. So she sent me to live with her because she thought that that would help me with my anger issues. And, you know, I think she thought that having a bit of stability in my life would be good for me. Or maybe she just couldn't deal with me anymore. To be honest, I've never really spoken to her about it because it's like it was so long ago that I don't really care what her reasons were Mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah. What do you remember about... (laughs) that decision being made was it your decision I was happy I was super happy about it I can't I don't know I don't know if I suggested it or if my mom was just like get out of here go to grandma's house I don't know who kind of come up with it first but I do know I was very very happy about the only thing I was upset about was that I couldn't take my dog with me yeah but everything else I was like hell yeah let's go I'm gone. I love grandma. Screw these kids. Screw my mom. Screw my stepdad. You guys can all stay down here. I'm going to my grandma's house. You didn't miss anybody? Nah, not really. Like, at that age, nah. But even now, like, my family's not super close. You know, there's a lot of us kids, but I don't even talk to... I haven't seen my brother in two years, you know? Like, I haven't... I think I've spoken to him twice in the last two years, and it's like that. My family, we're not a 
the kids were not a very close. How many kids family. are there? Uh, my mum's side, my mum has six. My dad has another two outside of the ones for, with my mum. So he had three with my mum, yeah, and another two. Yeah. And then, like, each one of those halves has two or three sisters or brothers as well. So I think collectively there's 17 or 18 of us. Uh, but, like, my sister on my dad's side, she has three other sisters that I've never met them, you know. So they're still, like, in the group, but I've never met them. So what does the word family mean to you? Uh, not, like, a whole lot. You know, because I wouldn't, I don't know, that's a really good question. Family is like, to me, it's more of, I guess, a formality, you know, because it's like you're supposed to love your family, like you're supposed to be able to rely on your family, you're supposed to be able to to get along with your family or whatever. Like your family is just a group of people that that you were thrown into, that you didn't choose. So it doesn't really mean a whole lot to me. Um... I just, like, I care about some people and I don't care about others. Like, obviously, I love and care about everyone in my family, you know, but I don't know what's going on with them. Like, I know more about some of my friends than what I know about some of my brothers and sisters. So who am I to say that my brothers and sisters are more important than what my friends are, you know? Because, like, some of my friends have been through, have been with me through my hardest times and my brothers and sisters haven't. So they, I, to me, like, the family members, the blood members shouldn't mean more to me than non-blood members because they haven't done any of the things that the non-blood people in my life have done, right. if that makes sense. No, it totally yeah. does, yeah. So maybe maybe my views will change when I have my own family, you know, that I've created. Maybe things will be different. But right, right now it's like a, lo- a lot of people in my family have been so in and out of my life that it's just a word, you know? Yeah. They're more my friends, I guess, or even acquaintances in some respects. The closest people to you. My mom, she's my family. Still? Yeah, my mom's my, mom's my best friend. I love my mom. Yeah. You know, we don't get along so well when we're, like, next to each other, but we talk, we'll talk on the phone for three hours, and, like, she's my best friend, you know? Still in Australia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's in my hometown of Innisfail. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about, um, you go to grandma's, yeah. and life is good. Yeah. What was uh, that like? Well, my, granda- my grandma uh, was remarried. And I actually introduced her to her, to her husband, to her second husband, and I hated him. So, like, I'd go there, and I loved being with my grandma, but I hated being with my step-granddad. Like, I did I the whole time I knew him while my grandma was still alive and married to him, it was like I was friendly to him because he was married to my grandma. You know, that was it. Like, I didn't get along with him that well. He and I didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. Um, but when I was with Grandma Carol, yeah, it was brilliant. I loved it. Like, yeah. she was, yeah, she was awesome. She was my hero. So you lived with her when through So I moved school? in with her when I was 10. And then I think my mom, my mom ended up moving up with all the kids and my stepdad when I was, like, 12 or 13. So then I moved back in with my mom, and I lived with her till I was 16. Then six, I've been out of home since I was 16. Wow. I just never went back. What did you do as a kid? What do you mean? Uh, for hobbies. What did you like? We were just always outside. Like, we'd ride horses. I grew up with a lot of horses. We'd go horse riding. Um, That was on the farms. We'd go horse riding. Like, we'd go... There were a couple of kids on neighboring farms that we'd go meet up with and kind of get into mischief. And we'd, like, take... They had donkeys, so then we'd steal the donkeys and, like, take them way out bush and do stuff like that. We were, like, very adventurous. And then when I moved... In with my grandma and like started going to school and had more routine. I was always an avid reader, so I, I read a lot um, and I played a lot of sport in school as well. Because yeah. I was like, <clears throat> I was always an outsider because I came from the hippie family. I'd never been around kids my own age, so I didn't really know how to talk to people, how to talk to kids my age. Like I hadn't watched the TV that they watched when they were younger. I hadn't eaten the things. I hadn't listened to the same music. I didn't even know who the Spice Girls were. <laughs> so I was like always an outcast in school. Um, what kind of made people want to be friends with me was that I was a straight-A student and I was very good at sports. So I was always, like, I was always first in all athletics. I played on every single sport team we had. Um, And then it was, like, people were my friend by default just because I was the hippie kid that was really good at sport, you Uh know? Like, sport made me cool in some respects. And I also think the fact that I didn't really care about being friends with these kids uh, made them kind of 
want to be friends with me more. But it was like a really weird, it was always a weird relationship. Like I was slightly bullied. But at the same time, if I ever was like, am I allowed to cuss? Sure. Okay. If I was ever like, oh, fuck off, I don't want to be your friend, then they'd be like, no, 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 come back, be our friend. You know, like they wanted to be my friend, but they didn't. But yeah, it was, it was like that all through high school as well. But I was always so engrossed in just doing my own thing that I didn't, by the time I got to high school, like I didn't really care anymore. You know, I was just, I'd go, I'd go off every, every lunch break and I'd go play sport with boys or I'd like, I got my license before everyone else and I lived in my own house and everyone else when I was in high school, like still live with their parents and everything. So yeah. I just get in my car and disappear for all the lunch break, you know, I'd go home and make lunch and then I'd come back. Cause Which I was like, to other high school students is mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. But I was like, you know, I had my car, I had my license, I had my own house. I also like worked two jobs after school, before and after school. What'd you do? So I worked at a, at a paddle beaters. So, um, vehicle repair okay and then i worked at a bar as well so you're a mechanic no 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 i I ran the office so my grandma (laughs) my grandma was uh the manager of the place and then she gave me a job and i did certifications through them just business administration business management that sort of stuff after being a traveling gypsy life as you said and then to go to school how did you like the school life of being in uh, one place no i hated the same people but i wasn't like that's the thing is that i was never in one place so I went to my primary school. I went to for three years, so years five, six, and seven. That was the longest I was at any school. Then I went to year eight at the high school in my hometown, and then nine and ten, I was at a school an hour away. I got a scholarship to a private school. Mm -hmm. So I went to the private school for two years, and then I came back for my second last year for year 11 to my hometown, and then I did like a month of my senior year in my hometown, and then I bailed and just worked. How do you keep it all straight? I don't know. I feel like I forget stuff all the time. And then as I start to talk about it, I was like, oh, that's right. That happened as well. I want to write a book one day, but then I'm like, it's going to take me so long just trying to get my timeline right. Because uh-huh. every now and then, like, I'll be talking to my mom. And I, my mom's got dementia, so I never know if, if she actually remembers what happened or not anyway. So we'll be talking. I'll be like, oh, I remember this, this, and this. She's like, Jesse, that's not when that happened. Or that's not where that happened. This is it. But collectively between my concussed brain and her dementia brain like we end up figuring out the right time and place and circumstance Uh uh-huh you mentioned at 16 you left the house yes why i didn't get along with my mom i had a lot of anger when i was younger and a lot of it was just to do with my mom and dad separating which didn't make sense because like i'm the only one that was old enough to remember how bad it was when they were together like all i remember of them being being married was them fighting constantly you know and I remember being really relieved when they finally separated. But then um, my dad, he was very neglectful when I was growing up. It's only been, I think, since I turned, how old am I now? 31. It's only been since I turned like 26 that my dad's really been in my life. So between how old, I think I was six when they separated, between six and 26. So for those 20 years, like he was in and out. Sometimes he'd try to disown me, tried to disown me when I was 13 because I got my belly button pierced. He said the only whores got their belly buttons pierced. He had his own issues at that, at that time, obviously. Um, but so because of, because of how my relationship with my dad was, I had a lot of anger towards my mom. Like all the kids just blamed mom, you know, because we were with her all, all the time. So it was easy to blame her because she was the one that was in our face. So as I guess I was hormonal and I was like going through those crucial years, her and I did not see eye to eye at all. At all. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to move out. I was working. I had money, you know. Um, yeah, so I moved out. And then I bought a car. And then I, I ended up quitting, my, quitting school in my senior year because I was, I was faced with either going home and finishing school because I couldn't afford to do all my senior year and work. You know, I, one of them had to give, you know, or quit school and keep working and stay out of home. And so I chose to quit school and kept working and... Where did you go? I stayed in my hometown because I was working. I, when I quit school, I was working at the paddle beaters with my grandma. So I had to finish my certification. Um, and then I think I worked there for a year beyond that. And then I moved back up to Cairns, which was an hour north. I was in Cairns. Who did you live with? I lived by myself. I always lived by myself. Okay. Yeah. So I never had, I think I had a roommate for six months when I was 19. Uh-huh. Um, and then I kicked her out and then I left town and moved four hours south and lived with my sister for a little while and then her and I started disagrees and I moved out she moved out and yeah for to be a 16 year old in Australia 
and to work and to live on your own. Was that no. something? <laughs> no, I was the only person doing it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was the only one. In in the United States, I think it's illegal. Really? I mean, I think you have to be 18 to like kind of live on your own, or I don't know, maybe it's oh, not. Oh no, I was good because I like describe like I had, the challenge of being a 16 year old, literally on your own, working. Well, I was already so I was already working because I started working. I mean, a lot of kids work. Yeah. But not a lot of kids work, and then they go to their own apartment or their condo or their yeah. house that they pay for themselves. Yeah. What was that like? It was cool. Age? I mean, it, like, it was super cool. I loved it, you know. It, like, it got really lonely a lot of the time because obviously I came from a very big family to suddenly living by myself, but at the same time it was so free. Like, I remember trashing my apartment, absolutely trashing it, and going, cool, I'm not cleaning this up till the weekend, you know, because no one was there to tell me I had to clean anything up. Um no, it, it, to be honest, like, I don't recall it ever being a problem. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was such a natural integration for me. Like, I was so aloof and always doing my own thing anyway that it just made sense to me. Like, at my mom's house, I lived in the garage. I was like, I could live in the garage or I could go get my own apartment. Like, I was already working. I was already driving around. Like, I was already doing all these adult things that it didn't make sense to stay with my mom. And, like, I, I got I got my lease with my grandma's help. She went guarantor on my apartment. I, I could prove that I was already making money, that I had steady income, you know, and it was never – was an issue. So when does being a fighter become part of what you do? Well, I was 23. Super late. You're going on. You're working. You're living on your own. Yeah. So then when I was – so I kept moving between Innisfail and kids. So we're an hour apart, apart it's far as my hometown, Kansas, where I was born. Um, and I just kept, like I said, I'm a gypsy, so I'd get really bored. Like I'd sign a six-month lease and then the six months would, would be up and I'd be like, oh, I could sign on again or I could just go somewhere else. And I'd always just go somewhere else. Like that was what I did. Um, so when I was 19, <coughs> I'd been dating this guy for two years and it, it had broken down and I was like, I don't need to be here anymore. Like my hometown is super small. Like the population is 6,000 people, you okay. know. And so the guy I was dating was a very prominent name within the within the community. Like he was, how old was I? So when I was 17, he was 28. And so he'd grown up, gone to school there, grown up there. Like he knew everyone. Everyone knew him, knew his parents. So it was like, it was one of those inescapable situations. You know, where even though we'd broken up, I was always associated with him. So I was like, all right, I'm leaving. And I moved four hours south, which was where my dad lived. And... Uh, actually my brother and my sister both had already moved down to where dad was before me so they moved in with dad um, a couple years before I went down there then I came down and my sister and I got a house together and I started working for my dad he ran a construction company Um, he ran a construction company and a temporary fencing where they do the fencing around construction sites so I ran the temporary fencing company for him would like go out on site set up all the fencing pack it down all that sort of stuff um yeah, and then so I was in Townsville for a few years, started working in nightclubs and worked my way up to management, was managing nightclubs, and then I was dating a security guard and he was kickboxing and I was powerlifting. So, like, he and I, he would go to kickboxing, I'd go to the gym and then we'd meet up to do, like, bodybuilding workouts together, right? And then I remember reading in the in the local newspaper about this local girl who just competed in a powerlifting meet and she'd taken out first place for the region. And I remember like looking at it and I knew who her coach was and I was like looking at her weights that she'd lifted and I was like, fuck this bitch. I lift way more than that, <laughs> right? And like the mean competitive side of me came out and I was like, fuck her, I'm going to beat this. I'm going to beat this girl. Um, literally like didn't even know her and never competed in powerlifting before ever, but I was like, nah, I'm going to do this. And then I think like four days later... The guy I was dating, we were talking about, I had to drop a couple of pounds for it. He's like, oh, why don't you come to the dog factory, which was where he did his kickboxing. Why don't you come to the dog factory with me, Uh, come do some cardio. I'm like, yeah, cool. So I went and then for my first day, I was like, no, never, never powerlifting again. No, I'm done. Like literally, I remember walking in there when I was 21 and going, yeah, this is, this is it. 22. This is it. I'm sold. And then a year later, yeah, I fought kickboxing. Sold as what? 
sold like that's all I wanted to do I was like I found my you know I want to fight that's it and I remember there was this one girl Jackie who was there and she was fighting kickboxing it was an MMA gym but she was fighting kickboxing out of the gym and she would like everyone the coach my boyfriend like everyone around had been like when you can beat Jackie in sparring you can go fight and I was like all right fuck her I'm gonna beat her up and <laughs> I remember like she was always my goal and I'd watch her spar and I'd watch her spar and I'd watch her fight and I'm like yeah I'm, I'm gonna fuck this bitch up and I never even got to spar her because right when I started doing live stuff, she bounced. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh. like, you know, that was like she was my Everest. You know, she was my like she was the one who was going to open the door to me being a fighter. And then she disappeared. And then I was the like, only female left who actually wanted to compete. So they're like, oh, fuck it. Let's go. And just never looked back. So when you went in to do that cardio, did you end up going to the powerlifting competition? No. No, no, no. I stopped lifting weights for like two years afterwards. I didn't touch a weight. Literally just After went, that night. After that first night. I remember like where the club was, Dog Factory was above a strip club. And so we had to walk up four flights of stairs. It was disgusting. So hot. Like you'd get to the second flight and just sweat and heat would hit you. And then you'd be walking up into this sauna. Because where I'm from is very tropical, hot and humid. So you'd walk up into this sauna sweat box. And I remember being at the front of the mats right by the entrance and I was doing this like Dutch style kickboxing class and halfway through, oh, I was partnered with my boyfriend. I remember kicking and the coach came over and he was like, man, you got a really good kick. And I was like, yeah, it feels fucking nasty, you know? (laughs) And then, yeah, that night I was like, no, I'm not going to the gym anymore. And I just started going there, joined up and started teaching. Like I was teaching there before I even fought, you know? Just, I just picked it up. Like, I felt like I was a natural at it, you know, and it was the first time, like, if anyone ever meets my mom, they, like, they always ask her about what I was like as a kid, you know. My mom always says, like, she never stuck to anything. Like, I was always off searching, you know. Like, I'm very passionate and I'll be super hooked on something and then I just get bored really mm-hmm. quick. And uh, she knew from the first couple of weeks of me talking about it that I'd, like, I'd found what I was going to stick to. And that was kind of after about a year of doing it. That was when I fully realized I was like, yeah, this is what this is what I want to do, you know, because I'd never stuck to anything that wasn't paying me money. I'd never stuck to anything that long. That first night, is that when it clicked? That was when I knew that I wanted to do that as like a form of exercise and that I wanted to fight. But it wasn't until after my first fight, which was kickboxing, um, that I was like, this is what I want to do full time. And what then, was it about fighting? What did it do to you? You know, it's just, I always saw it. I know you to be a nice, smiley, happy person. Yeah, and I am. You know, I'm not, I'm not an angry person. I don't fight because of anger. I never hate anyone that I fight, you know. Like, I'm an athlete. I'm there to compete. And I love what it is that I competed, you know. And it was that first night. So my very first fight was kickboxing. It was in my hometown of Innisfail. My whole family was there. Everyone had Team Jesse shirts on. It was in, like, the 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 uh, town hall, which is tiny. Like, it's a tiny little town, Mm -hmm. right? But this kickboxing show was the first one ever to be put on in that town. The guy who was promoting it was one of my best friends in school. Um, We'd lost one of our other friends to leukemia like a year before, and his family was really poor and they couldn't afford to put a headstone on his grave. So every all the proceeds from that event were to buy Jordan a headstone. So it was like everything was lined up for this perfect debut moment you know like everyone I loved was there um it was to support someone I love like it was my other friend's debut promotion like it was just a ton of different things and I remember and my mom has said this a lot she remembers me walking out and like I just walked out with a massive smile on my face like no nerves all the photos of me getting my hands wrapped are just me super happy super super happy and it was like a horrific weight cut fucking terrible day like I'd cut by myself, my first ever weight cut, I'd cut 18 pounds in a sauna on my own. None of my team helped me. Then had to drive four hours up to where the event was, weighed in that morning, weighed in over by two pounds. And they were like, ah, oh, it's your first fight. It's amateur. gives a fuck. Um, went back to this like dodgy hotel that looked like a bunch of people had been murdered in it. Ate Subway. And, as I, and I remember as I was eating Subway, I was sitting on the bed and my coach was trying to IV me. And he kept missing And then so by the time he finally got it, like the bed was covered in blood. I was covered in blood. My coach was covered in blood. I was just so happy though to be there that like it didn't didn't matter, you know. And then... All that happened and you're still smiling. All that happened. I was like, I was just so happy to be there. 
And afterwards when I won, like, to, I didn't even care if I'd won or lost. Like, I remember when the fight ended and I was like, I don't give a fuck what happened. Like, that was dope. And then I won and then to win in front of everyone and see how happy everyone was. And they were like, you know, my ex's ex-girlfriend and her family were there and I hated them because they'd always fucked with me when I was with my ex. And it was just, they'd just watch me beat the shit out of some fucking girl. And it was just, there's just so many good things, you know. And after that night, I remember going back home and just, I was on a high for so long that I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to lose this, you know. And then ever since then, like fighting's like, fighting's an addiction. It's like a, like it's legitimately an addiction. Every fight I have is always still chasing the feeling of that very first one. And only one fight has ever come close. And every other one is still like, you're still just chasing, chasing that high, chasing that feeling of happiness, you know. But What was the one that's come close? My UFC debut. Because it was the same thing. It was exactly the same perfect storm as what my very first fight was. Like my, de- my debut was in Sydney, which is where I lived before I moved out to Vegas, which was where I had my first MMA fight was in Sydney um I got to I'd I'd lost a couple of fights and I'd finally won one then I got signed and then it was in Sydney um I got to have my my coach at the time from Vegas John Wood with me and I got to have my first coach my first MMA coach from Sydney Eagle with me you know so having those two there being able to take Eagle to a UFC event to corner me was huge because he was with me for my first MMA fights you know um and then all my family was there. My best friends were there. Like, it was it was everything I'd ever pictured. Like, I'd always, ever since I decided to fight full-time, the one image I always had in my head was being in the tunnel and looking up and seeing my name in the lights, you know? And that was it. Like, there's a video on my Instagram of me standing at the tunnel and looking up at that and just being... Like, I was so happy that I was in tears. And the whole time I was, like, trying not to cry as I'm walking out because I was just so, so excited. And then the girl that I was that I was fighting against um, Rollins, right? was Beck, and so Beck and I both started at the same time. Except I was fighting kickboxing, and she started straight into MMA, right? And we were friends at the start, and then something happened with a sponsor where the sponsor ended up turning us into enemies, and we were like, her and I were like the beef of Australian MMA, right? She'd heckle me at fucking events, like, and because she started fighting in Invicta, she started fighting in UFC before I did, you know, so she was always the one who did it first. And so she'd, like, heckle me at events, she'd talk shit about me online, just tons of stuff. Like, there was a lot of bad blood between us. And then it was only a year before my debut that her and I made peace and became friends, because we both had similar domestic violence experiences, and we, we kind of became friends because of that, you know, in support of each other. And then so, but like, while we were beefing, that fight between me and her was always talked about as being like the fight to make, you know, always. It was, when are you going to fight back? When are you going to fight back? She was at 115, I was at 135. And we were always like, we're two weight classes apart. Like, it's never going to happen, you know? And then Beck's first fight, she lost. She got uh, head kick knocked out, knocked out in Australia. Um, by Rhiannon Thompson. And then I beat Rhiannon Thompson. So Rhiannon beat Beck, I beat Rhiannon, right? And so that just kind of added fuel to the fire. Uh-huh. And then so for my debut to be against her was fucking money. Like that was perfect, perfect opponent, perfect venue, perfect event. Like it was it was a perfect storm. Everything about it was, was amazing, you yeah. know? So, yeah. Tell me about what you remember in that first fight, that kickboxing fight. Like, do you remember in the fight? Do you remember moments in the yeah. fight? Yeah. That, that <laughs> were like that that stand out as like I have found what I'm gonna do. No, it was more like to me it was hilarious. Like I remember after the fight thinking back on how it was, and it was just carnage. Have you ever seen the Simpsons episode where Bart and Lisa are fighting and Bart's kicking and Lisa's throwing it or vice versa? Yeah. It was like that, where it was just like windmill arms, kicks going everywhere. And it was just so fucking ridiculous. It was such a terrible, ridiculous fight where like I was almost doing the splits for most of it because my stance was so wide, you know? And I remember after the fact thinking like, that was fucking ridiculous, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I thought I was better than that, but... It's still like it was just such a joyful experience that nothing nothing could have tainted it, you yeah. know? We all start somewhere, right? Yeah. I probably still, I still fight like that sometimes. When did you move <coughs> to the United States? Uh, 
August, September, August or September 2016. And why did you do that? Uh, so I fought out here. I fought in Vegas at the Cosmopolitan for Invicta in July. Yeah, it was International Fight Week when Connor fought Chad, uh, 2015. And ever since then, I was here for a week. And ever since then, even though it was a fucking terrible week, it was such a bad week. But ever since I left, I was like, there was something about Vegas that I was like, I'm coming back here. Like, this Why was is it a bad like. week? So I'm going to get to that. Hold okay, up. Because okay. it's all connected. Go ahead. Um, so at the time, I was dating my ex-fiance. Um, and we were just fighting the whole time. So he was a fighter back in Australia. And even though he was, like, proud of me for making it internationally, he was jealous of it at the same time. So, like, I remember before we came out, for my Invicta fight, he was like, look, don't be surprised if people don't know who you are out here, but they know who I am. And I was like, what the fuck? And then we got out here and no one knew who he was. I think one person, a concierge at the Palms, recognised him because he's a very recognised individual, recognisable individual, recognised him from a video he'd done. Um, but that was the only person the whole week. And so he sulked the whole week and, like, took it out on me and made it really, really unpleasant, right? Not only that, after the fight, so I lost. I did get to meet Frankie Edgar after my fight, and Frankie was my hero. So mm-hmm. I was very happy about that. That was, like, my one saving grace for the whole week, aside from just loving Vegas. Um, but so I lost, and I'd had my ex in the corner plus a jiu-jitsu coach that – just happened to be in Vegas for fight week, which was why he was in my corner. Otherwise, I didn't care about him being there, you know. Um, and so after the fight, so we got accommodation from Invicta for fight night and then that was it. From Sunday, we were on our own. But I was, we were supposed to go stay in our coach's room and then he bounced on us and just left us. So we had no money because I'd lost my fight. So I only got half of my paycheck, half of my promised paycheck, plus I'd taken 35% tax out on top of that. So I ended up with next to no money. Um, the camp had cost me so much that I didn't I didn't have any spending money. Like I was banking on that fight purse to get me through being in Vegas, right? So then I had no money. My ex had no money. He blamed me for our coach bouncing on us. It had nothing to do with me. It was my coach was a dickhead. Um, and we weren't booked to leave back to Australia for three days. So then luckily uh, one of my mum's exes, uh, lived out here and he like he was around when I was in my early teens uh, for, a, for a long time and always got along with him. So he lives in Ohio, he's from Ohio and he'd come to Vegas for my fight and then he bailed us out. He paid for our accommodation, you know, made sure that we were okay. Like he rented a car, drove us around so that we still got to kind of do something, you know. Um, yeah, so then we went home and I was like, even though the trip sucked, I was like, I want to go back to Vegas. Like, I, f- I felt it. There was just something that I felt that I was supposed to be here. Um, and then, so, in, yeah, in 2016... You wanted to come back and live here. I wanted to live here, yeah. Yep. And then, so, in 2016, in April, I was living in Sydney with, with the same guy. Uh, and he... We had some domestic violence issues, and I had him arrested. And I called my, my manager now, Daniel Rubenstein. Um, he hadn't been managing me at the time, but we were friends. We met in Japan when I fought out there. And we just were friends ever since. And I called him because I didn't, like, I didn't have any friends. Like, I'd been, because of my ex, I'd been alienated from everyone. You know, it was a very, like, very abusive situation where I didn't talk to any of my family. I didn't talk to any of my friends, nothing. And then I had Danny's number and something just told me to call him. And so I called him and I told him what had happened. And he was like, I'm paying for you to fly out here because I still had a visa through Invicta. Uh, I think I had 18 months left on it. And he was like, I know you got your visa. Like, don't worry about it. Just keep working. I'm going to pay for your flight. And so he booked me a flight for August. And I just worked the next couple of months and then came out and just never went home. I had no idea what I was going to do out here. He bought me a one-way ticket. I had no accommodation, like nothing. Um, He wasn't my manager, so he was just like doing it out of the kindness of his heart, you know, because he saw, I guess he saw a girl in trouble who had nowhere else to go, and he was like, what he said to me was, he's like, if you stay in Sydney, you're going to get back with him, and you're going to end up either pregnant or dead or both, you know? I was like, okay, cool. So then he paid my flight, and I came out, um, and then just kind of made my way from there, and now I'm here. If he thought you were a girl in trouble, did you think you were a girl in trouble? Uh, 
honestly, like, I was so lost that I just had no idea what to do, you know, because I'd tried to leave my ex so many times, like so many times and always got dragged back in. I was with him for almost, well, for two years, always got dragged back in. And um, when I finally, like, had the courage to call the police on him and have him arrested, that was when, and the only reason I had the courage to do it that time was because he tried to kill my cat. And I was like, no, that's enough. Like, what what sort of man does that, you know? Um, like, it didn't matter what he was doing to me because I was like, I'm an adult. I can handle myself. But I'm like, the cat, you know, is a cat. That was my opinion at the time. Um, and after that happened, my cat and I went and lived in the storage uh, room of a supplement store for four days before I could afford to send my cat up to my mom because we had nowhere to go. We were stuck in Sydney with no car, no money. You know, everything, like I was working three jobs and everything I made was going towards his apartment. You know, I paid for everything. And so when it all broke down, I had a restraining order against him. So I I couldn't go back to the apartment to even get any of my stuff because he was still there. And so me and the cat lived at a supplement shop for four days. And then I sent him up to mom and then I kind of made my way from there. Like I put out feelers online and stuff and just found couches to sleep on. And I ended up like... We were talking about family before. Like, my family is the family that let me sleep on their couch in Sydney. They had a tiny, is it uh, two parents and two kids? And they had a two bedroom unit and they let me live on their couch for that time frame between moving out and moving to Vegas. Um, And I still go stay with them on their couch every time I go back to Sydney now, you know? But yeah, I I don't know. I, I never really, there's never been any point in my life, no matter how bad, where I've ever really felt like I was a girl in trouble it was always and I think that's why I stayed in really bad situations for so long because I never felt like I was in trouble it was other people external of me that were going hey that's fucked up but I was always I always have a way to justify what other people are doing you know because even when people are really shitty and doing really shitty things my nature is to always see the best you know and always believe that that something good is going to come from it and Mm -hmm. so I never felt like I was in trouble yeah you know but I'm glad that Danny thought I was you know, I'm glad that he saw it because if he had the pay for that flight, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be signed. Like I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. Yeah. One more on that. You mentioned Beck Rawlings and you kind of have similar histories yeah. in the domestic violence. Do you care to make that a part of your story? Or are the you... domestic violence? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Is that important? How important is absolutely, that? Absolutely, because... Um, you know, it took me a long time to get to move on from it. And even now, certain things will come up that, that trigger uh, different emotions, negative emotions, you know. But if that, if that exact moment, if that exact e- evening hadn't happened, I wouldn't have moved to Vegas, which meant I wouldn't have met the people that I know now. I wouldn't have started working with Danny. I wouldn't have been signed to the UFC for that event. I wouldn't have got to fight Beck Rawlings. Like, I wouldn't have and be able to do all the things that I have and am able to do now. So I've felt like for a long time, I've given a lot of public talks about it, like the negative and the positive that came out of that situation. And I really feel like the difference between me now and the person I was back then are night and day, you know, and I wouldn't be the person I am right now In without that specific event. You know, I before him, and a lot of it I think has to do with, with my relationship with my dad, like everyone, it's very cliche, but it's true. Like, I had a lot of issues with men. I had a lot of issues with dominant men. I, like, would shut down immediately. As soon as, a, as soon as like, a loud personality or a dominant male personality would say something to me, I'd shut down. And I'm, like, I'm a very dominant personality myself, but there was just something about that where I would turn into a little girl and I was, it was impossible for me to say no. It was impossible for me to stand up for myself. Like, it was impossible for me to voice what my beliefs were and what I wanted to do. It was always, like, yes, master, you do whatever you want. You know, I'm here to help. Um, and then that situation taught me a lot of things, taught me that I can't put that much stock in other people, taught me that I have to put myself first, you know, that I had to heal a lot of issues within myself. I had to heal, heal a lot of issues that I had with my dad. I had to heal a lot of issues that I had with my moms as well, you know, to, to grow into the person that I am now. And I still, there's still a lot of things that I work on now, you know, to try to grow into the next version, um, but that, <clears throat> that night with him was the catalyst and I understand that. And it took me about a year to realise that. Like for a year I was very angry and I was very upset and I'd drink myself into oblivion all the time. I, I had a lot of alcohol issues and, um, you know, it took, it took a while for me to move on past it and then I, I finally started to move past it. And then, then I quit drinking and once I quit drinking completely, 
it like allowed me to really take a step back and evaluate everything that had happened, everything that had happened before that to put me in the situation where an event like that could happen and then everything that had happened since and the opportunities, the negatives, the positives. Like I always felt like like my life that I was destined to help people, you know? And I think that experience gave me a voice and it gave me it gave me experience to be able to help other people. And that's what I try to do with it. You know, like I don't see I'm I'm never a victim. I was never a victim of anything, you know. I had the opportunity to go through that because I was strong enough to get through it and I was strong enough to understand that I could use that event to help other people who maybe don't feel the same way. You still not drinking? Yeah, ten months sober. How's that affected you? It's been awesome. Awesome. It took a it took a while because I, I relied very, very heavily on alcohol. Um, through camps all the time. I was drinking constantly, you know, and I knew it was an issue for a long time, but I just couldn't, <clears throat> I couldn't find my why to get out of it, you know, like I had no real reason to get out of it. And then it was after I lost in Singapore and like that camp had been a terrible camp. There was a lot mentally and emotionally, physically I was great, but mentally and emotionally I was an absolute wreck. You know, my coach and I, we weren't seeing eye to eye. We didn't talk for probably half of the camp. Um, Let's let's unpack that a little bit more. So, yeah. after your debut, yeah, uh, I want to go back to after your debut. Okay, so which was best best week ever? Best week ever, best week ever. Celebratory drinking, okay. And then I come <laughs> back, <clears throat> I come back to Vegas. I spent a week up with my mom. Then you fought Paige. Then I came back and I fought Paige. And then after Paige, I got really sick. Like I was sick when I fought Paige. My body started shutting down because of the big weight cuts because I'm not a natural 25er, which is why I've gone up to 135 now. But I was trying because I thought that was my ticket into the UFC was to be at 125. So destroy myself. The only time in my life I ever thought I was legitimately going to die was in that weight cut for Tell me more about it. So we cut for 15 and a half hours. I spent like weeks leading up to that. Okay, so there's more backstory. I was having a lot of respiratory issues and I couldn't figure out what was going on. We thought I had pneumonia at some stage. I went on antibiotics, didn't do anything. This is before the page fight. This is before the page fight. This is in camp for Paige. Um, so, like, for two weeks, I got offered the fight the day after my fight with Beck. So, for two weeks, I was like, fuck, yeah, let's go. I was on a high. So, it was a right? quick turnaround. It was two months after? Yeah. Or yeah, yeah. They literally, the day, the morning of the, the morning after the Sydney fight, Mick called uh, John Wood. It was like, do you want this? Like, yeah, done. I literally just said, I want to fight Paige Van Zandt next. And then he got the phone call and they're like, do you want to fight Paige Van Zandt? Yes, done. Um, so I had two weeks, celebrate, hung out with my family, came back home, celebrated a bit in Vegas and then got back to work. And then I started ha- through that camp. I had six weeks, I was six weeks out and I started like, I thought I was having anxiety attacks, right? I thought I was having panic attacks where I just, I'd be sparring and my lungs would just stop working and I couldn't breathe and, um, or I'd wake up and I was just, I couldn't breathe, you know? And the whole camp, we were like, what the fuck's going on? Like, Bo, I was working with Bo, and I'd come in some days, and he'd be like, how's your lungs? I'm like, dude, I don't know what's going on. And no one could figure out what the issue was. We just kept pushing through it. And because I had so much weight to cut, I was just running and running and running every day. And they got out to fight week, um, cut, did the water cut for 15 and a half hours. My body does not drop water easy. And I still had, I was still way off weight just because I'm not a 25er. Mm-hmm. Um, so they made weight, <clears throat> waited 125 and a half, come back, started eating and drinking again. And then for that, what was it, 24, 36 hours between weigh-in and fight night, I only ate two meals and drank probably a gallon of water. Couldn't, like, go to the bathroom, nothing. My stomach was a rock. And weighed, checked in on the scales before I got in the cage, and I was 153. And my face was all puffy. I felt terrible. Like my head was cloudy. Like I felt sick, you know. And there's all these photos. There's photos of me out the back. And you see like my eyes are puffy. My cheeks are swollen. I was just a fucking mess. And then I went out there and I hate that fight, you know, because I like I survived it and I won it. But I was running off pure instinct. Like there was nothing structured in that fight at all. There was no thought process. It was just I have to get through this, you know. Um and then after that fight, I was bedridden for two weeks. So we did a bunch of blood tests through the PI. They were awesome. Came out, reviewed it. They said that I was giving myself an immune disease. Um, I was pre-diabetic. My thyroid had shut down. Just all these, like, nightmare 
nightmare health issues from weight, from weight cutting. So I took 10 weeks off of nothing, like nothing at all. And then because I had to have 10 weeks of no training, nothing, all I was doing was sitting at home drinking. The day before my weigh-in for Paige, my house got robbed, right? They cleaned out the whole house, killed our cat. Um, so I came back the day after Paige, feeling sick, walked into my house to see it ransacked, walked into my bedroom, it was ransacked. Everything was gone. My UFC debut gloves were gone. Like they'd stolen a bunch of clothes and I just, I couldn't even be in that house. So that day, that day that I got back, I called one of my friends who I knew was trying to rent out his apartment. I was like, I'll take your apartment today. And I moved that day. Didn't spend one single night in that house. And you never went back? No, I ended up going back two months oh, later. You went back and yeah. lived there? Yeah, yeah. Because my housemate who was with us, who I lived with when it got robbed, she stayed there. So she, her, my instinct was to run because in Australia, like, stuff like that doesn't really happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Um but her instinct was to like, no, fuck this, I'm staying here. So we got cameras, security systems installed, everything. But so I'd, I'd left and I moved into an apartment and I was there by myself. I got my dog, Blue, which I think she was my saving grace at the time. But other than that, I'd just sit at home talking shit to my puppy and drinking the whole time because I wasn't allowed to train. So I just avoided the gym because I knew if I went to the gym and saw everyone else working out and I couldn't work out, I'd get really upset about it. So I just sat at home for eight, uh, for eight to ten weeks just drinking, doing nothing. By yourself. Yeah, by, well, with my dog. Yeah. But um, so things got really bad then. And that was kind of, but that, 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 that point where I was on my own was when I started to realize that that was a big problem, you know, that that was an issue. And so I started going to church. Actually, Bo, he, my trainer here at the PI, him and his wife took me to church. And that, like, that changed my life. For sure. Wow. Yeah. So they, because he knew, like, because I confided in him a lot. You know, I was having issues with my coach. I had issues with, like, my dad, with other spits and pieces. And I was here by myself, you know, like, my family's not close. So I had no one to talk to. Anyway, none of my friends are here. So I confided in Bo a lot. And um, he was like, I think you need Jesus in your life. So him and his wife took me to church and it, like, made a massive impact on me immediately. And I started realizing that, oh, like I have things that I need to change. So one of the things that I knew was an issue was me being by myself because when I was by my, because I was so unhappy being by myself, like I had no one to help me get out of it when I was feeling really shitty, you know? So I moved back into the house that got robbed because my housemate was still there. So I moved back in with her and then instantly, like instantly felt better, you know? Started cutting my drinking back. Um, And then we started camp for Jessica in Singapore and for some reason, and I don't even know what started it, I think it was just miscommunication between my coach and I, where, like, we were on two opposite sides of a certain situation. Neither of us were talking to each other. So for, like, a good six weeks of that camp, we were at a disconnect. Where so you would go in and you'd train. Yeah, and I felt like I was being neglected, you know. I felt like his, I felt like his attentions were on everyone but me. And they were because he thought I was mad at him. So he was like, oh, fuck her. If she's mad at me, like, I'm not going to coach her, you know. And then I was like, fuck him. He's not coaching me. I'm mad at him. So it was just this, like, this circle where neither of us were talking to each other to figure out what was actually wrong. We were just both angry and seeing the wrong side of it, you know. And then I think it was, like, two weeks out. We finally sat down and spoke about it. It kind of reconciled and realized that it was just a miscommunication. We should have spoken to each other, but we didn't. Um, and then so the last two weeks of camp were good. And then we went out to Singapore and I like, I just had this, I just had this feeling again. Like I was just really, I was unhappy, you know, mentally and emotionally. I was very, very unhappy. Physically, I felt the best I've ever felt going into a fight. And so I went through fight week, had it, my weight cut was good for that one. I felt better. Um, got to fight night and just like felt just off like just like my brain wasn't present you know like I just wasn't I just wasn't there it was the same thing as the page fight but completely different at the same time where I just like I was on autopilot you know but I had no reason to be because physically I was healthy like I felt you know from a physical and technical perspective my camp was fucking amazing you know but just mentally and emotionally I was so down that I couldn't I just couldn't focus on and then I lost that fight and then it was after that I come back so that was June 23rd and I quit drinking on July 15th and I remember it was the night Kat Zingano fought someone because I was at a bar here and I was with a with a group of people from here 
It was and in Boise because I called the fight in Boise on July yeah. 14th. Yeah, okay, yeah, July so 14th. Yeah. July 14th was my last fought stream. Marion Renault. Yes, yeah. So I remember watching her fight and I was sitting at the bar and I was drinking and I was like, fuck, man, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I'm done, you know? And then, and then that was the last drink I had. So I always say July 15th was the day I went sober. A couple of months after that, when I was like, I went through withdrawals, you know, started realizing, like, almost relapsed a couple of times because it was like I'd always used alcohol as a way to get through issues or just numb issues so I didn't have to deal with it. And then all of a sudden I wasn't using it anymore and I actually had to deal with everything. And then a few months later I realized that a big issue for me was that I was unhappy in my gym. And so then I finally, I left. I left syndicate, you know, and, and instantly. And I like, I almost wish I'd done it earlier just because instantly it was just a weight off my shoulders. And I haven't looked back, you know, like... There hasn't been a date. Like, I was really sad to leave. Like, it was like going through a breakup. You know, I loved my coach. I loved my teammates. There was just something, and I, I still can't pinpoint it, but there was just something there that was really toxic for me, you know? It was an, it was an energy. It was an atmosphere. It was just something. There was something that really, that kept me in this super negative state, you know? And, I, and it was a Tuesday morning, and I remember, like, I, I was due to, I was fighting, two weeks later in Milwaukee. It was like two or three weeks before my f- my fight with Andrew Lee was supposed to be. And I remember um, that Tuesday morning, I woke up and I felt sick. And, and it was because I knew, like I was planning on holding out until after my fight. I was going to get through the fight and, and leave Syndicate after that fight, you know. But I woke up that Tuesday morning and I was like, nah, today's the day. And I could just feel it inside me. I was like, today's the day it needs to happen. And I went out to 10th Planet and I went to jiu-jitsu and I trained that morning. And I was talking to my jiu-jitsu coach, Casey, and I was telling him about it. And he's like, look, Jesse, just, he said, sleep on it. You know, give it a couple more days. Like, don't go and do anything right now. Let's push through to the fight. Like, I understand you're unhappy, but just sleep on it. And I was and I was like, okay, no worries. And I got the car and I was like, no, fuck this. And I went straight to syndicate and I left. I, had a, I sat down with John and I was like, I'm not happy here. You know, I'm not... I don't know what it is. I'm just really fucking unhappy. And then we didn't even, like, separate on bad terms, you know? Like, that conversation was a great conversation, and I say goodbye, and I grab my stuff, and I bounce. And then things just turned super negative since then, you know? Because, like, for whatever reason, I guess he was more upset about it than what he let on, you know? And, and, and he handled that in his own way, you know? But I don't have anything bad to say about it or the situation. Um just it definitely was the right move for me because ever since then like I just felt like I had more control of my life I had more control of what I was doing you know I could go I just had this freedom and it was a beautiful thing and it's it's it it comes back to that gypsy upbringing as well where like as soon as I feel locked in I feel like I have to be somewhere I'm like I can't do this you know I feel like I'm on a leash so it was I had that leash released and I was like fuck I feel good again like I feel like me again you know, and I, but I think going sober was a lot, was what led me to finally make, have that realization that I was in a t- situation that was bad for me. And it's not bad for anyone else, you know, it was just bad for me. How would you describe weight cutting for you? Uh, now, not hard at all, because I'm back at 135. Right. Cutting to 135 is brilliant. Um, but I'm like, I'm part, I think I'm, I feel like I'm part of this new wave of fighters that are starting to fight more at their natural weight, you know? I had a really, really good conversation with Anthony Smith in here the other week about it because obviously he went up a weight division as well and, and he he approached me and he's like, I've been wanting to ask you since, made, since you made the decision, you know, how do you feel going back up to 135? And I was like, look, I haven't fought at 35 again yet, so I can't give you a 100% answer until after that happens. I'm like, but camp, it's way better this was before I got injured so I was in camp for my fight mm-hmm. um I was like I was able to lift weights like I didn't have to just run myself into the ground I could eat pretty much whatever I want like I feel like camp now I can actually focus on getting better and getting towards the fight instead of when I was at 125 it was literally 12 weeks of weight cutting every session I did was targeted towards weight cutting was never targeted towards getting better technically, getting to better, getting better athletically. And since I made the decision to go to 135, I feel like I've become a better athlete. I've started learning again. I don't feel malnourished. I'm not getting sick every five weeks like I was. Because I literally, I would train for four weeks and I'd have to have a whole week off because I'd get super sick because my immune system was just so malnourished, you know. Yeah. So my overall well-being is way better. My lifestyle is way better. I don't have to say no to going to events and going to hang out with my friends because I can't eat anything and I don't want to be around a bunch of people eating, you know. So, 
yeah, it's definitely, once I fight, I'll be able to give a 100% answer, you know, but right now I'm absolutely an advocate of less lower weight cuts, you know. And I I like, I tell this because I train a bunch of fighters as, as well. And I say the same thing to all of them. Like every time we're talking about, what weight they should fight at. I'm like, look, this, like, what's going to make the most sense, you know? Because, like, I feel like the days of trying to be the bigger, stronger fighter in, in the competition, are, they're slowly going away, you know? Like, Frank Yeager was the champ at 155. That motherfucker is tiny, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and I look at guys like him and I go, man, like, even Chad Mendes, like, Chad Mendes is tiny at 145. Like, yeah, he's jacked, but he's five foot one. Like, all the. <laughs> Jessica Andrade is about to fight for the title. She's one of the smallest ones in the division, you know. Like, yeah. there, there's these there's these fighters that have been fighting at their natural weight for so long, but people aren't paying attention, you know. And finally, now that every like a lot of people, Tiago uh, Tiago Santos has jumped up a weight class, and what he's won almost every fight at that new division, you know. Now that like these names are starting to jump up, everyone else is starting to look and go, oh, like you don't need to be the big, you don't need to be the bigger one. And my kind of mentality change where like yeah I was the bigger athlete you know in my three fights at 125 but I was so depleted and drained that I couldn't do anything that I know I can do you know I feel like now I'm a better athlete I'd rather be a little bit smaller but completely functioning and way more athletic you know I'd rather be faster more athletic more technical I don't need to have the size anymore until I fight someone massive and I go fuck I'm too small (laughs) That's to be found out, right? Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen, to be honest. Like, now that I've, I've gotten that, because I had that, it was like, a, it was like a, a closed door in my brain for a long time, you know, where I was like, I'm too small for 135, too small for 135. And it was actually Coach Kieran from CSA when we were getting ready for the Andrea fight in Milwaukee. And I went up to train with him to do the rest of camp with him. And he was like, ah, oh, dude, like... So I don't think you should be fighting at 125 like you're a 35. And I was like, nah, I'm too, I'm too small. And he's like, no, Jesse, you're a 35. And I was like, nah, fuck this. I'm not going to 35. And then I, like, I, I passed out my weight cut for the Milwaukee fight. I ended up fighting, right? And I'm grateful that that happened as well. Like it sucked not being able to fight, missing out on a paycheck. Like it sucks for fucking Mick Maynard. It sucked for Andrea Lee. It sucked for everyone involved. But I know that if I had a made weight, like gotten to the scale safely, being okay I would have tried to do 125 again you know but that happening made me realize like I can't keep putting my body through the hell that I was going through like I was fucking miserable like people ask my housemate she's the best one to tell you what I was like when I was cutting to 25 compared to what I'm cutting to 35 and it's night and day I was fucking miserable and now like I get to enjoy life and I'd rather enjoy my job and love it you know than constantly just fucking hate the things that i have to do just for 15 minutes of fun you know yeah i'd rather the whole thing was fun and right. now it is except for when you get injured but the rest <laughs> of it's awesome i have to ask you about your tattoos yes what do you want to know when did you start getting them uh my first one was was like two days after i turned 18 so 18 is the legal age in australia yeah um, we tried, my mom tried getting me one at 17, but they said no. So then as soon as I turned 18, she drove me up to kids and she chose my first tattoos, a gecko on my hip. She was supposed to get the same one. My mom has a bunch of tattoos. She was supposed to get the same one uh, and then fucking didn't do it. So then I ended up with this shitty little gecko on my hip. I remember going in there and it was this guy called Mo. Um, <clears throat> and I was like, mom, is it going to hurt? And she's like, no, nah, you'll be fine. And I remember like the second He's touched my skin. I was fucking crying. It was so painful. Um, and then I got like just so that was when I was eighteen. Then I got a couple of little ones here and there. But all like all these didn't happen until I moved to Vegas. Yeah, yeah. Like literally everything's been the last two years. Even my face, my face. I think the first face tattoo was three years ago. What? Why did you get a face tattoo? <clears throat> so my ex fiance is covered right. head to toe, full face, right. ears, everything done. So it was like because I was with him, it took away the taboo of it. You know what I mean? Like it was natural for me. I looked at someone with face tattoos every day and I was like, oh, fuck, yeah, that's cool. Like, And he's like, do you want to go get one? I went, yeah, why not? Like I didn't see anything wrong with it because the person that I spent 90% of my time with looked like that. So, you know, I know it's not a normal thing to, and not a culturally normal thing to do, but for me it was all I knew. And then... Yes, yeah, so he took me to get the first one, the broken heart. He got the same. He has the same one on his face, um, 
And then after I got the first one, I was like, fuck, I need to get, like, I can't handle non-symmetry, you know? Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, I need to get one on the other side. And then, yeah, I think like six months later, I got the second one done. You still going strong with them? With the tattoos? Like, I, do you want more? Do you, you know? Yeah, like, I want to finish my arms. You know, I have a lot of little blank spaces and I'm, I'm still debating with whether to do my thighs or not. I don't want anything on my torso. I don't want anything on my back. Um, but I, like, I kind of want to do my thighs, but I, like, it's such a big area that I can't figure out. I haven't found exactly what I want yet. Yeah. I think I want a picture of my dogs, but I haven't got the right picture yet. Got like it. I want a portrait in a frame on my thigh of my dogs. Um, but yeah, I think arms and legs are kind of what I always saw. Yeah. I won't get anything more on my face. You regret any of them? Uh, you know, there are some times that I wish I'd never gotten any, you know, because I see, like, I look at everyone that I interact with, like, the fight game, everyone has tattoos, right? You go out to the strip, you go out to the shopping center, like, everyone is tattooed. There's very, very few people that don't have any, you know? Like, sometimes I wish, like, oh, yeah, I wish I didn't have any because I feel like a lot of different doors would have opened for me. I'd have a lot more post-fight avenues. I pretty much made sure that I had to be really good at fighting because I'm I got face tattoos. Like, I'm not really going to be able to do a whole lot else, you know, aside from athletics and media. They're pretty much the only avenues that are really open for me right now. Um, so sometimes, like, I wish I wish I hadn't got them. Also, I know, like, it's happened so often where I've met people um, for the first time and they already knew who I was and then they tell me that their opinion of me was very different you know, before they met me. And that, that like, that hurts me sometimes, you know, but I understand, like, I have hand and face tattoos. I I curse a lot, you know, like, I, I talk shit. I'm Australian, like, we're supposed to cuss and be rough and, and all that. So I, I understand it, but it's still, like, it still eats at me sometimes, Yeah. you know. But then at the same time, like, I'm happy that people don't really know who I am until they get to meet me. Like, I'm not super obvious and I'm happy to be, go against the cliche. Right. But yeah, I'm always like 50-50 on them. Like, I love them, you know? Yeah. But if I could go back, I probably wouldn't really get any of them. Or maybe yeah. just my face tattoos and nothing else. <laughs> I don't know. Jesse Rose Clark, thank you for joining thank the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you for this long. <laughs> you got a lot out of me that no one else has gotten yet. <laughs> That's the goal of the show. Thank you. There you have it. Jessica Rose Clark, one of a kind certainly and i really like getting to know her a full session there uh we covered a lot and as i said in the beginning i knew she had an interesting backstory i didn't know how interesting it was and i knew of course too that she's really friendly it was really a pleasure sitting down and talking to her for a long time can't wait to see her fight again at the time of this podcast she has a broken foot but i think she's about to get back to training uh very soon so hopefully in 2019 and beyond we see her back in regular action But thanks again for listening. Thanks to Jessica Rose Clark for the time. Just a reminder to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at TV. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.